Welcome to Future of Journalism, a podcast from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. I'm Eduardo Suárez. Twenty twenty one has been an important year for journalism. The pandemic has accelerated the shift to hybrid work. News companies have grappled with familiar challenges such as debunking false information, covering climate change, and tackling the lack of diversity. And also, more newsrooms have embraced reader revenue to fight declines in advertising and in print sales. So, how has this year changed journalism around the world? My guests today are four of my colleagues: our director Rasmus Nielsen, our deputy director Mira Selva. The leader of our research team, Richard Fletcher, and our head of leadership development, Federica Cherubini. All of them have published research that can help us understand what's happened in journalism in 2021 and how some of these challenges can play out in 2022. Rasmus, Mira, Richard, Federica, welcome and thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks, Eduardo. Thanks for having us. So let's start with you, Federica. Uh, 2021 has brought first discussions in newsrooms around flexibility, and it has also accelerated the shift to remote work and hybrid work. Um, so you are the lead author of a recent report about these topics. Um, how have news organizations dealt with the inevitable trade-offs throughout this year. Um, is there any interesting examples out there? Thanks, Eduardo. Um, yes, as you mentioned in the Changing Newsroom report um, we published in November, um, we've um, looked at the shift from enforced remote um, to hybrid and flexible working in those places around the world where it was possible to do so um, in a safe um, way, of course. Um, and it turns out that many of the um, leaders surveyed in, in, in the survey um, say that um, there are many organizations are still really figuring out how to do this, um, this hybrid um, shift and really rethinking what is the office for. Um, among some of the trade-offs and things to consider on how when you navigate this um, is a sort of like um, balance between flexibility, equity, and operational requirement that this shift um, requires. So concretely, who and when um, is in the office, um, what roles might be more suited to be in the office, and who decides when and, and how to be in the office. And throughout that, of course, they need to navigate the complexity of the gains that we've seen in efficiency, for example, but the things like collaboration and communication has been made much harder, according to our server respondent, and things like how to run inclusive hybrid meeting. Um, what about proximity bias? So the fact that the people who might be in the newsroom in front of the bosses might have um, some sort of like um, favorite treatment, even if not um, a conscious one by just being by the virtue of being there and being person. Also making sure that um, hybrid uh, working does not reinforce um, disparities. Uh, let's think of people with um, childcare responsibility, for example, or caring responsibility in general, thinking about the added pressure on managers who are the ones left with navigating all of this complexity. So many level of complexity that will require careful and very intentional planning um, from newsroom leaders. 
Hmm. And of course, it's not just about uh, remote uh, hybrid work. Uh, 2021 has been a year of reckoning again for the news industry in terms of addressing its lack of uh, diversity in terms of output, uh, leadership, staff. Um, and yet our survey of leaders suggests that many newsrooms are doing actually nothing uh, to tackle these issues. Uh, for any hour of our listeners working on one of these companies, uh, could you give us uh, any examples of news organizations actually taking useful steps uh, to tackle this uh, diversity problem? Of course, um, as you said, what it's clear there is still a lot to be done on the diversity front. Um, some of the things that um, our respondent in the survey mentioned is, for example, tracking data uh, on diversity of staff, tracking data on diversity of leadership position, for example, having someone in charge of diversity and inclusive practice, but, you know, having a budget to put behind those things. Um, I think the example that are interesting um, from, from this area is both in terms of like increasing the pipeline, for example, we have a few um, respondents who mention initiative to try to attract um, people from less advantaged background. And for example, hosting events for um, students or, or young readers um, from those less advantaged backgrounds to show how the news industry works and make it um, look like more appealing and more um, representative for them as well. Um, but of course, thinking about all the levels of the organization, companies like Quartz, for example, have turned into a fully remote um, and work from everywhere company. Um, and they said um, in, in, in our um, report um, that that helped uh, significantly with increasing, uh, for example, diversity of the candidates that could apply for jobs and really help them um, increase the, the, the performance in terms of diversity. So really thinking about both getting um, diverse, diverse people with diverse background um, with, you know, in the door in the first place, but once they are in the company, really thinking about how can we have truly inclusive um, newsrooms and news organizations. Hmm. Uh, let's go from diversity to another issue uh, that news outlets are struggling with, uh, and that is climate change. Uh, Mira, in early October, we launched the Oxford Climate uh, Journalism Network, uh, a project whose goal is uh, to help newsrooms improve their coverage uh, of global warming around the world. Um, you are one of the co-founders of the project, uh, and we, you, you are actually leading the project itself. So how are we going to achieve this goal? Hi, Eduardo. Yep. So the Oxford Climate Journalism Network is going to create a network of journalists from around the world, from key newsrooms and from key reporting outlets. And the network is designed to give them the skills, the space to discuss and to learn from experts that we'll put in front of them through a series of online courses and also crucially from each other. And the idea is to create a kind of global knowledge sharing network where the knowledge sharing goes in all directions. And we're also going to work with senior editors and key newsroom managers to figure out how to build newsrooms in order to do the kind of new kind of journalism that we need to report the climate story effectively. Hmm. Because I guess, I mean, the question there is, uh, what would you say uh, are the main challenges facing journalism when improving their coverage uh, of this very, very important topic? Is it the nature of the topic itself? Is it the structure of the newsrooms? Uh, or, or is it also the lack of the literacy uh, of reporters and editors around this issue? 
a combination of factors. The key thing is that the climate story is both incre incredibly immediate, it's happening outside your window right now, and it's also very, very long. It la it's something that really unfold over decades. And the news agenda and newsroom beats are in many ways not quite geared up to report on this, to report on something with tremendous intensity and to get the attribution correct, for example, to report on the uncertainty, but also to stay on the topic, both in terms of science and holding policymakers to account for policies that they're not going to possibly live to see the full implications of. So this is kind of part of the problem. And the other issue is several newsrooms are now setting up climate desks and climate hubs. And this is really vital. And we want to work with them to kind of make sure that everyone has the right skills and knowledge, but also to really understand that climate reporting is not a separate beat that can be hived off into a corner, that it's something that affects politics and sport and travel and economics and social affairs as well. That is so important. Um, you're also the director of our uh, journalist fellowship program, uh, and you select and host uh, dozens of very talented journalists every year. Uh, I listen to their conversations here in Oxford. Um, as a former journalist fellow myself, and I'm, I'm curious, and I'm uh, really delighted to ask, what did you learn from them uh, throughout this very, very difficult year? Absolutely. And um, we learned so much. The key thing is that connections matter. So we've had an in-person fellowship and people have really made an effort to come to Oxford, wear masks, get vaccinated and be in the room together. And they have gained a huge amount. We've had journalists from Kashmir, from Hong Kong, working with journalists from London and from the United States. And they have all come from, in different ways, very difficult environments. And they've gained a lot of solidarity and a lot of strength in being together. What we've also learned from journalists is how much courage it requires to be a journalist and when do you keep your head down, stay out of trouble, and when do you go into battle to get the story out? And it's a balance that sadly, like too many journalists are having to deal with pretty much every day. Thank you, Mira. Uh, Richard, uh, one of the chapters uh, of, the year, of this year, uh, Digital News Report, explains how different groups perceive uh, how the news media covers them. Um, uh, and some of this has to do with politics or polarization uh, or diversity, as we discussed before with Federica. Which groups uh, feel unfairly treated by the news media? And what can you tell us about their grievances? Yeah, so as you mentioned, this is one of the the areas that we explored for the first time in our digital news report this year. So just as a reminder, this is our survey of news audiences across around 40 different media markets. And what we were looking at was whether people think that people like them are covered fairly or unfairly by the news media. And because we wanted to go beyond people's general view of media coverage, we asked more specific questions. So we asked, for example, whether people think the news media covers, covers people their age fairly, people their gender fairly, uh, people with their political views fairly, where they're from fairly, uh, and, and so on and so on. And when it comes to age, we found that in most countries, people who are aged around 50 uh, are the most likely to think that uh, people their age are covered fairly by the news media. But when we look either side of this, so looking at the, the older age groups and the younger age groups, uh, we see the figures start to fall. And in particular, the youngest age group in our data, the 18 to 24s, are in some countries the least likely to think they are covered fairly. And in a country like the UK, just as one example, uh, the 18 to 24s are twice as likely to say they are covered unfairly uh, versus fairly. So a big difference uh, within that group. In some countries, uh, women are less likely to think they're covered fairly by the news media uh, than men. 
And this is particularly true for younger women who, again, in some countries are more likely to say they're covered uh, unfairly versus fairly. Uh, we also saw some interesting differences in around how fair people think the coverage is of where they live. And the patterns vary according to which country you look at, but I can give you a sense of it. So in the UK, people who are further away from London are less likely to think where they live uh, is covered fairly, uh, for example. And you can see a similar pattern in the US too. So as we, if we start at the east and west coast and then look further inland, people are more likely to say that they're covered unfairly uh, in that case. And it also we see a similar pattern again in, in Germany, where people in the former eastern states are less likely to say that the media covers where they live uh, fairly. And lastly, the other really important uh, factor for, for these kind of judgments is, is politics. So political partisans on both the left and the right are typically more likely to say that they're covered unfairly uh, compared to people who put themselves uh, in the centre of the political spectrum. Of course, it's important to keep in mind that these are people's perceptions. So uh, we may we can't necessarily use the data to, 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 to learn what we think about the coverage itself. Um, because because it may or may not be a result of, uh, of, of the, the coverage. It could also just be people's perceptions. Uh, and this is particularly relevant when we think about something like political partisanship, because research on the so-called hostile media phenomenon has shown that partisans from different sides can sometimes think that the same coverage is biased against them. Uh, but nonetheless, perceptions are still really important, uh, especially as we, uh, we think about something like trust, uh, for example. Mm, totally. Um, um, uh, talking about politics, I would like to raise uh, one of the articles that you have published this year, uh, along with uh, some of our colleagues, and that's uh, a piece that suggests that people that use search and social and aggregators have actually more diverse news diets, uh, contrary to what many listeners may expect and contrary to some of the talk uh, about filter bubbles and echo chamber, etc. So how did you reach uh, this conclusion and, and what do you make of it? Well, I mean, this finding is uh, based on uh, some desktop and laptop web tracking data uh, collected by YouGov in the, U in the UK uh, in 2017. And as you mentioned, in line with other research, we found that rather than enclosing users into filter bubbles, where algorithmic news recommenders supposedly filter out information that people don't want to see or don't like, uh, we found that social media search engines, aggregators, and other similar services are actually more likely to show people news from outlets they wouldn't normally use, uh, ultimately leaving them with more diverse news diets, and also news diets that are more balanced across different outlets with different editorial lines. And we think this happens in part because if people are left to their own devices when it comes to getting news online, most people uh, don't have particularly diverse news repertoires. So many people hardly use any online news at all, uh, even if they're using lots of news uh, offline. Uh, but also outside of platforms, people form strong habits where they voluntarily choose to go back to the same websites uh, over and over again. Uh, but it's also in part because when people are using social media search engines and aggregators, they really have less direct control uh, over what outlets they, they come into contact with. Uh, so if someone goes to a search engine, for example, and puts in a news query, uh, they're often in practice, end up clicking on an article from an outlet they wouldn't normally go to, a process which we've called elsewhere automated serendipity. And on social media, similar things can happen, but in addition, many because many people don't log on 
to social media with the specific intention to look for news, they can also be incidentally exposed to news while they're looking to connect with friends, entertain themselves, or just pass the time. And of course, this is something that's particularly important for diversity among people who don't otherwise consume uh, very much news uh, online. That being said, I think it's also important to stress a couple of points. So first, although people who more often use search engines, social media and aggregators uh, do not have uh, diets that are more skewed to either the left or the right, they do end up consuming more new, more partisan news from both ends of the political spectrum. And of course, this is in a sense is, is part and parcel of what greater diversity really means. Uh, and the second point is that many people who use platforms for news still don't have particularly diverse news diets that span the full range of what's available uh, online. Uh, they just have more diverse news diets th than people who mainly rely on uh, direct access. Uh, and just to give you a sense of that, one of the most striking bits of data from this uh, piece of research was that the average number of different news outlets people used over the entire one, one month tracking period uh, was just three. Hmm. Amazing. I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure uh, our listeners would have guessed that. So, yeah. Thank you, Richard. Uh, Rasmus, um, we've seen some bright spots in 2021, uh, but of course, many news outlets are still going through a rough time uh, financially. And one of the most striking findings from this year's uh, digital news report is uh, that actually most people don't know about these financial struggles of the news media. Uh, our data also suggests that only a minority support government intervention as a possible solution. Uh, so I would like to ask, what do you think this means for public subsidy packages like the ones that are in place or being discussed uh, in different countries around the world? Well, I mean, first of all, I think we have to be realistic and recognize that sort of industry revenues uh, for news media is declining and will continue to decline for the foreseeable future, even as some individual titles are doing very well. And that the challenges facing the commercial provision of news are particularly acute when it comes to local news uh, and to news that uh, aims to serve less privileged parts of society. Um, and that, of course, raised the risk of market failure. Um, and in that situation, I think we really need to sort of be very clear that uh, public policy can make a difference for the better. Um, a new deal for journalism, a recent report from the Forum for Information and Democracy, reviews many of the different policy options that are backed by evidence, um, ranging from direct and indirect support for private independent news media to easing the creation and funding of nonprofits and to public service news. It's a purely political choice whether we as societies decide to use some of these options. That's for each of us to uh, make up our own minds about as citizens, uh, whether we think this is right, whether we think it's uh, a good uh, uh, opportunity in the society where we actually live in the context that in which we operate. But uh, what we can say from research is that if we go by what is currently in place, uh, what policymakers are proposing, and what public opinion research can tell us outside of a handful of unusual countries, it's not a very popular choice. So take support for private news media. Um, across the 33 markets where we asked the question in the 2021 digital news report, it's just 27% uh, who say that they would support the government stepping in to help commercial news organizations that can't make enough money of their own. And I think even more acutely, even amongst those who are most worried about the future of the news media, there is little support for government intervention as the solution. 
And whatever our personal opinions on the matter, I think most of us will be able to understand why much of the public is skeptical uh, of resorting to subsidies for commercial news media. First of all, much of the public doesn't trust the news media. Uh, secondly, uh, many do not feel that the news media respect, uh, represent and reflect them. Or they may fear that news media are intertwined with narrow commercial and or political interests. And even if they don't, they may not want their hard-earned tax money handed over to news media that in some cases continue to have double-digit profit margins even as they cut their newsrooms and pull out of covering local communities. So there are a few encouraging developments on the policy front. Uh, we are seeing increased scrutiny of competition in the online marketplace. We are seeing a few individual commitments like the U.S. federal government promising 30 million U.S. dollars in seed funding for the new international fund for public interest media led by Maria Ressa and Mark Thompson. But there are also continued attempts to cut public service media, um, of course, often cheered on by many newspapers. Um, and the fact that most governments have done little or nothing to help independent news media, even in the depth of the coronavirus uh, crisis, that's so clearly illustrated what a crucial role they can play, I think is indicative of the limited political appetite for significant public support for journalism. And that's without even going into how frequently what is presented as support on closer inspection may really turn out to be tools for media capture, uh, long exercised by strategically offering and withholding government advertising to reward and punish, for example. So while incumbent publishers may be able to wring a few favors out of politicians who still have reason to fear uh, newspapers, uh, of course, politicians who may expect favors in return, I'd be surprised if we see uh, very much policy change for the better. Of course, uh, hope springs eternal, uh, but I'd encourage most publishers to plan for the future on the assumption that their legacy revenues will continue to decline, that they have to make their living digitally, and that politicians will do nothing substantial to help them. Well, and speaking about revenues, uh, the percentage of people paying for news, according to our data, is um, taking off uh, in countries such as the US or Norway or, or Sweden. Uh, but progress is either much slower or non-existent in many other countries. And despite this, we are seeing examples uh, of news organizations being successful uh, with really revenue models in countries as diverse as Slovakia or South Africa, Spain, uh, Malaysia, Uruguay. Um, is there any playbook, playbook uh, that you see emerging uh, from these success stories? Uh, just to end on, on a more positive note. I don't think there is a single playbook, um, and I hope we won't see everyone uh, pursuing the same phantom silver bullet uh, or converge on the same business model. Uh, for example, I don't think subscription is likely to work for every publisher, um, and also advertising, while in decline, uh, I think will continue to be important um, for many. In terms of reader revenue, um, I would say the starting point has to be that convincing people to pay for news has to start with actually asking them to do it. And uh, the countries where we've seen the most growth uh, in the percentage of people who say they pay for online news are often countries in which initially a small number of brave publishers committed to the long term and uh, over time more and more publishers have for now for uh, many years uh, been building up their subscription business. So it doesn't happen overnight. The second thing I'd say is that I think there are at least three common features to those who are doing well in a market that's characterized by a few winners and many losers. I'd say good use of editorial talent, investment in tech and commitment to use of data. 
good use of editorial talent. Uh, by this, I mean that they are committed to producing journalism that's valuable for the people who use it and distinct from the abundant range of alternatives that people have access to. Investment in tech, by this I mean uh, that they commit resources to ensure that they deliver a good product experience that approximate what people accustomed to platforms have come to expect. And commitment to use of data, uh, by this I mean that they continually use hard evidence to evaluate and refine their offers uh, rather than be guided uh, mostly by gut instinct or chasing fashions in the industry. Now, I realize it's one thing to identify features like this, um, and it's another entirely to be able to pursue them in practice. And it is a very challenging market, especially for local titles, and importantly for titles that serve some of the least privileged parts of society. Um, but these, I think, are some of the common features across both the biggest and most visibly successful titles, which are often upmarket national titles like Dagens Nyheter in Sweden, Le Monde in France, or the New York Times in the US, all in high-income democracies. But also, even more importantly, I think these are common themes uh, or common features across many of the smaller players and newer entrants, often operating in less affluent and sometimes more challenging markets, whether Danik N in Slovakia, Malaysia Kini, uh, or the Daily Maverick uh, in South Africa. And in that sense, I hope that publishers elsewhere will both um, recognize that uh, pay may not be for everyone, um, but for those uh, who want to pursue it, that it takes time, often years, and thus require commitments of the long term, and that there are some real lessons that have been learned uh, that does involve investing in good use of editorial talent, investing in technology, and a commitment to use uh, data uh, uh, in pursuing one's business opportunities and, uh, and editorial ambitions. Hmm. Uh, thank you, Rasmus. Before the end of this episode, I'd like you all uh, to make a wish for journalism in 2021, something hopeful. I mean, we did this last year. Uh, let's see uh, what you would like to see uh, in the new year. Uh, let's start with you, Federica. Um, I would like to see Newsroom really taking care of their talent um, and really running inclusive newsrooms. So really thinking about how to um, acquire the talent they need, how to nurture it um, in order to retain it and having a much more empathetic yet um, operational, um, op operationally efficient um, newsroom um, with an eye to diversity. Let's hope for that. Um, what would you like to see in the new year, Mira? Well, Dmitry Muratov and Maria Ressa won the Nobel Peace Prize this year with a clear call to arms um, for the protection of journalists and the safety of journalists. So what I would really like to see is a fundamental shift in society where we respect the right of journalists to at least do their jobs without the threat of harm or, or worse. Hopefully that, that will be a bit more true in the new year. Thank you, Mira. Uh, Richard, what's your wish for journalism in 2022? Uh, well, last year you asked me this question and I said responsible coverage of the vaccine rollout and here we are a year later and this is still my wish and of course it applies both in countries that are still in the initial stages uh, as well as those currently rolling out booster jabs. I think it's a great wish and a very timely one. Thank you. And Rasmus, uh, what's your wish? I hope uh, that in the profession of journalism that we focus more on the journalism that we want in the future and less on the journalism we had in the past. That's a big, uh, big wish and uh, hopefully will be a bit more true in 2022, thanks to our research and, and thanks to our uh, fellowship and, and leadership program. Thank you all for being with us today.
Thank you. Thank Joanna. you. Our guest, <laughs> Merry Christmas, uh, Mira. Our guests today were our director, Rasmus Nielsen, our deputy director, Mira Selva, the leader of our research team, Richard Fletcher, and our head of leadership development, Federica Cherubini. Make sure you follow our podcast channel in, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss the next episode. And if you don't want to miss any news from the Institute, please subscribe to our weekly newsletter by clicking on the link on our Twitter bio or on our homepage. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We wish you happy holidays and plenty of health for you and your family in the new year. I'm Eduardo Suarez from the Reuters Institute. We'll be back soon.